1: Good Morning Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Freiman. And I am Toby Howell. Happy 4th of July, everyone. Hope you are having a wonderful day off with friends, family, and potato salad with heaps of mayonnaise. We are off for the holiday, but in true American fashion, the content factory never stops. So we've pre-recorded another special episode for you today. We spoke
2: to one of the co-founders of Morning Brew. Today, we are getting to know Alex Lieberman. Alex started Morning Brew when he was just a student at Michigan alongside current CEO Austin Reef and has been building the company for the better part of the last 10 years. We're going to talk to Alex about his journey with the brew, how it felt to step down from being CEO of the company he founded, and discuss his own podcast under the brew umbrella, Founders Journal. It's Tuesday, July 4th. Let's ride. Alex, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Good to be here. So we've been using these special holiday episodes as a chance to get to know different people from the Morning Brew ecosystem but we're especially excited to talk to you because without you, there is no Morning Brew ecosystem. You are the founder of Morning Brew. You actually hired both Neil and I, and you currently sit as the executive chairman of this huge multi-million-dollar media empire. But before all that, you were just a young, ambitious business major at the University of Michigan. For the people who may have just found the pod, but don't have any background on the company that is Morning Brew, can you tell us how Morning Brew kind of started? Yeah, thanks
0: again for having me. I mean, it's good to be here with my golf buddies. Uh, so I, I think to understand my background, you need to like go a little bit, even before college, when this was started, I grew up in a wall street family and all I knew was like wall street and financial services. My dad was a trader for 20 years. My mom was in sales and trading for 20 years. Grandpa was in sales and trading. So like my entire life, my dream was to be a great trader. And it's interesting because like, I had no idea what that meant. It was more just like my role models did that so that I was gonna do it. So I went to the University of Michigan, was in the business school there. At that point, like freshman, sophomore, junior year, still on that track going after like the ideal trading job. Uh, I was in the business school, studied uh, finance and sales and trading, had internships at Morgan Stanley, sophomore year, junior year. And basically, I got into my senior year at Michigan. I had my job in hand that I had accepted to join Morgan Stanley for after college. I had all this free time. And basically, it ended up being filled by two things, playing uh, a lot of FIFA. And then uh, the other half was helping other students in the business school prepare for job interviews. Um, And one question I would always ask these students was, how do you keep up with the business world? And they would always say, "You know, I read the Wall Street Journal. But it's dense, it's dry. My parents tell me to do it, but I can't get through the whole thing. And at some point I was like, this is crazy. Like all these students are about to spend half of their waking hours for the next 50 years of their life working in business, but they don't have content that gets them excited about their careers. So I started writing a daily business roundup, which was called Market Corner. Uh, I would spend five hours a day basically doing <laughs> what Neil has done for the last six years, reading through, you know, the primary business news sources and what I call remixing them, like a DJ who remix remixes records, like remixing them into digestible, approachable and engaging blurbs that help at the time the college business student keep up to date with what was happening in the business world. And I wrote this by myself for like three months. It was an incredibly, can I curse on this or no?
1: No, well, we might believe it <laughs> I, this, you know, nothing, no F-bombs. Okay. It's a okay. hot it, episode. It was, it, it was,
0: it was an incredibly shty <laughs>
1: pro, pro,
0: uh, product. <laughs> it, it was uh, a PDF that I would attach to an email every day. So like, it wasn't like an email newsletter with a template. There was no website to sign up. You'd have to literally email me and say, Hey, I want to subscribe to your newsletter. And I would go into market corner at umich.edu and manually put in emails. And for whatever reason, like after a few months of doing it, there were a couple hundred people subscribed. One of those people happened to be Austin Reef, one of the uh, OG subscribers to Market Corner. I'd sent out an email basically saying, I'm thinking about taking this a little bit more seriously. People are reading it. Austin was one of the people that responded. I still have the original email (laughs) of us corresponding. Framed. Yep. uh, I don't have it (laughs) framed. I need to frame it at some point, but basically it was like, I wrote that email saying I'm interested in people helping. Austin was like, "I have ideas for how this could be better. Want to chat?" I responded, "Cool, let's meet after BPL," which was Beer Pong League, because oh we're because we, we're in the same fraternity oh at Michigan. My. Um, and so we met after Beer Pong League in the winter garden at the business school and it's so interesting, right? Because like normally you spend weeks or months figuring out who your co-founder is for a business, but we, it was basically like speed dating for us. Like <laughs> mm. we basically became co-founders of the business in a few days. Mm. And I think my intuition was right, but there's also a lot of luck because it could have gone really wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Truly. I have a question. How many times do you think you've told that story? <laughs> like I actually want to know. Uh, it's really interesting. Thousands. Uh, but at, all, le- at least like, I would say maybe ten thousand because when you were in the early days of Morning Brew, you were the salesperson, right? You were yeah. you were the f- public facing person, and you probably had to tell that four or five times a day, exactly for three hundred days out of the year over yeah. seven years. Yeah, so you're talking about you know fifteen hundred to two thousand a year, right there. Yeah, uh, how do you motivate yourself to continue,
0: like telling this story? <laughs> it's a fun story, though. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I, it, you'll like see my eyes gloss over, and I just turn into a machine <laughs> I when I do it now. Um, but the interesting thing about this, by the way, and I'm sure other founders have experienced this, is I don't even know if that's the true story anymore, because when you've told oh. the story so many times, yeah. you act, you can't remember the original experience. So, for example, there's a part of the story that I don't tell, which is like. You know, part of this was like for selfless reasons of helping students, yeah. but there was a hundred percent, a selfish reason, which was I'm, I was going to go work at Morgan Stanley. Yeah. I felt like I wasn't keeping up to speed with the markets and this was a force function yeah. for doing that. So yeah, I don't even know what the right
1: story is. I, I have to break it to you, Alex. You didn't go to the university of Michigan. <laughs> yeah. You, went to, was all you went to Wisconsin. Very possible. Ohio state. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, that. Well, okay. So do, can you talk a little bit about your decision to leave Morgan Stanley and go work At the brew full time because people might think that you just graduated and went to morning brew, but you didn't. You still pursued your sales and trading career.
0: Yeah. So I graduated Michigan in uh, May of 2015. I think that is correct. (laughs) You can fact check me. And so then I went, worked at Morgan Stanley uh, in what was like, for me, the perfect job. Like this was my dream job, (laughs) said by no one ever, trading agency mortgages at Morgan Stanley. (laughs) And so I was doing it. And basically my typical day for the first year, I was basically at Morgan Stanley for a year and for that year, to paint a picture, basically what it was is the entire time I lived in New York City, which is which I don't live in anymore. I live in Hoboken, which is the greatest city in the world. Uh, I, I've been the biggest cheerleader for Hoboken. Yeah. Um, lived in an apartment on Twenty Sixth and Third. Lived in a five bedroom all five years that I lived in New York City. The five-bedroom that I lived in on 26th and 3rd was a true two-bedroom, meaning only two of the rooms. There were five complete rooms like with complete walls, but it was an illegal apartment because only two of the rooms had windows. Hustle, baby. My my overprotective mom told me that I couldn't have one of the windowed rooms. Like I had the first choice of room. She told me I couldn't take one of those rooms because it was on the second floor and she was worried that someone in the night would climb up the fire escape and stab me. So I lived in a windowless room for the whole first year. I'd wake up at 5 a.m. in complete... complete darkness, go to Morgan Stanley, work out, get to the trading desk desk at 630, work until like seven, come home, work on the brew basically until like 11 or 1130. And I did that every night for a year. And basically what happened was I, I realized two things at a certain point. One is like, I wasn't that great at trading. The second was I wasn't very excited about it. And so because I was, wasn't excited about it, I couldn't see myself ever becoming great at it. And so I ultimately made the decision a year in to leave my job at Morgan Stanley. And, uh, you know, when I talk about this decision, it sounds like a very clean process, but like to, to paint a picture for anyone who's thought about or thinking about leaving their job, it was eight months of just kind of excruciating discussion with my mom every day, leaving work and being like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. How I ended up thinking about it is like, one, I thought about the worst case scenario. Like the worst case scenario, if I leave Morgan Stanley and work full-time on Morning Brew, is the business fails, like statistically speaking. And I was like, okay, say the business fails, then what are my options? And I was like, well, hopefully I've made like good relationships in the New York City startup scene where I could find something else to do. Or hopefully I haven't burned every bridge at Morgan Stanley where they're like, oh, this is a cool experience he's had. This could actually like help um, make him an even better trader. Maybe it's a good business school story. So I, I went like four layers deep of thinking of options. And my view is like, if none of these things are options, if the business fails, then it's actually not a morning brew problem. It's like an Alex mm-hmm. maintaining optionality in his life problem. So that was one of the big ways I thought about it.
2: Mm. It's a huge step to make. I actually want to jump ahead just a little bit to when morning, you did leave Morgan Stanley, decided to go full-time at morning brew. I want to talk about a very pivotal decision what kind of went into the hiring process of my good friend Neil Fryman and what made you want to hire Neil in the first place?
0: So, I know Neil remembers this. I don't know I don't know if you remember this, but we actually didn't give the job to Neil at first. I do. I do remember. Oh. oh. I don't remember that. <laughs> so, you know, this I would say by the way, like in the early hires we made for Morning Brew, one of the best assets you have, but it also is um, there's real trade-offs to it, is so many of your early hires are made through like your network, mm-hmm. right? Because today we could have a job for Morning Brew, we could blast it out in our newsletter and we'll get a couple hundred applications. That in the early days, like we were like scratching and clawing for applications, not to say that you weren't a good application, <laughs> but we we weren't getting hundreds, we were getting like 10. Right. And so so many of our early hires came from introductions from current employees. The benefit of that is if you think a current employee is good and they recommend someone, you can start to like extrapolate, oh, this person probably is good as well. And so uh, Neil was introduced to us through our, not original, but like one of our first few writers as well, who had known Neil like his whole life. And so like that added instant credibility to Neil. Now, the downside of this is you do this too long and you have a very homogeneous organization. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to us in the first few years of the business. Um, but with Neil, basically what happened was we actually thought Neil was an incredible candidate. And I remember two specific things that made us, uh, feel that way other than just like he was a really quality writer. And I don't even know if this is how we still evaluate writers, but for the longest time, it was a very simple application where it was like, write a 150 word long story about a major business news topic. And basically within one or two lines, I could tell whether the person had the chops to write for morning brew. So like his writing, like absolutely hit the mark. But then the two other things were in the interview, I asked Neil, I don't know if you remember this. I asked him to te- teach me about something he's really interested in or passionate about. And he taught me about a battle in U S history and, and yeah. the level of knowledge and passion he had about this obscure uh like US battle uh was I, I uh, turned into a dad
1: very yeah, oh, early.
0: <laughs> oh is but like to me the type of brain that understands something so eclectic with such specificity is someone who I kind of saw could like nerd out on news and information for a long time. And the second is and I'm sure you've seen this video. Neil used to <laughs> Neil Neil used to have a prolific singing career. <laughs> and we watched a video. I don't even remember how we got access to it. Maybe it was on YouTube, but um from his a cappella group, he wrote a song called Chop It Off, which was about circumcision. <laughs> and the wit of that song, it, like his voice was great, but mm-hmm. the the incredible wit of the song, we we're like, Oh my god, like he is an incredible creative writer. And so that was the experience.
2: Morning Brew Daily listeners are gonna go digging for that video uh, now on YouTube. I remember yeah.
1: applying to Morning Brew and I did not know anything about business. I you're was, a big news guy. You love news. I love news, but yeah. I didn't know why Warren Buffett was famous. Yeah. I didn't know what an IPO was. Oh yeah. No,
0: you didn't know business well (laughs) i'm aware but but again that's a very learnable skill right right, the skill of uh being like a critical thinker super curious and writing well that's way harder to teach but yeah for any uh mbd listeners if uh you end up finding no. chop, chop it off no. on youtube
1: uh in the comments uh let us know what you think yeah. yes i've retired my singing career uh but we're not interviewing me we're interviewing alec so i want to jump ahead you started this company and you ran it for a couple years Uh, And then you stopped running it. So you made the decision to step down as CEO. And that is a very interesting decision that I think a lot of founders may want to make in the back of their mind, but don't. So can you just maybe talk about your thought process for saying you know, I founded this company, I ran it for a few years. I'm not the person who should be leading it going forward. Yeah, totally.
0: So what I'll start by saying is, again, I think I make it sound like a very easy transition. I want to kind of preface by saying it was actually one of the hardest things I had to do in my life. because, and I, you always use the analogy of like a college athlete or a professional athlete, when you've been doing something for a long period of time, it, it, your identity is so tied up in it. Sure. And so when ultimately I stepped down from the brew, you can imagine like, let's say I was spending 70 hours a week on morning brew for at the time six years. And then I went to basically spending 20 hours a week on the business and now having this remaining 60 hours to think about the fact that I wasn't spending <laughs> 80 hours on the business. It was incredibly difficult like i would say for me uh i was spending it, it took me it's called eight to 12 months to figure out like who is alex lieberman outside of this business that he's been working on since college honestly i was very kind of like self-loathing or self-defeatist after that i was like what am i even good at how much did i contribute to the growth of this business right like things i think from the outside people like it would be like what are you talking about like these were the thoughts that i had mm-hmm. like how much was this luck versus skill? How much did I help versus did my co-founder pull me along? Like, these were all the questions I had. And, you know, for me, the reason that I got to this place is I I viewed it as, like, there's two very clear stages in the journey of a business. There's what I would call, like, chapter one of being CEO, which is your number one job is to find product market fit and create a business out of that first product you create, right? So in the early days, it was write, grow, sell the best daily business newsletter for millennials bar none. And that was our entire focus at some point, And I want to say it was like middle of 2019, where we really started thinking about this. You want to switch into company building where you create like the infrastructure in order to scale beyond a single product where really the big change you make is going from reactive to proactive. Up to 2019, it was like fires were being put out for that day. Like mm-hmm. a success was putting out the newsletter that day. And we wanted to get to a place where we could be thinking about what are our goals three months, six months from now. And what I'd say is like, I, I've realized over time the first chapter the the product market fit chapter is like what I am most energized mm-hmm. by probably because it lends itself best to my skill set like I'm naturally creative I would say I'm natural I naturally have an ability to kind of like persuade people to move behind a cause like storytelling and selling like those are my things yeah and I would say in chapter two of a business not that those aren't important but those are less important than chapter one and chapter two is really about um, setting strategy, like setting a very clear strategy, staying later laser focused on it, s- setting really intentional goals, sticking to them, building up a leadership team of people who are way better than you in given functions and managing those people well. And I think a hundred percent, like my co-founder Austin is way better at those things. And that's what, what he'll, his will his sets are best lend themselves to. And so, you know, it wasn't the type of thing where one day I was just like, Hey, you know, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to stop being the CEO of the business. Basically, what had happened is from like middle of 2019 until April of 2021, which is when like I kind of stepped out of the business, Austin had started doing the jobs of a chapter two CEO, meaning like building a le- senior leadership team, setting quarterly goals, running our leadership meetings. And so I think in doing those activities, he basically in some ways shifted into the CEO role. So, actually, when I stepped out of the CEO role, wasn't this like very difficult transition because I was still like focused on like creating interesting new products, which is what I loved. But that wasn't the job that needed to be done of the CEO.
1: You just talked a lot about making difficult decisions, like over the course of your life. Do you have a process for making decisions? Like, do you have a decision matrix that you do have a pro and con list? Like, Do you, have you developed some sort of system for making big decisions?
0: I mean, I think, um, I think there's a few things that come to mind. Like one is, uh, I think about things in terms of regret. Like, that's what I think about a lot. Like, what would I regret more? So when I was leaving Morgan Stanley to do morning brew full time, I basically put out two scenarios. One scenario is I go full-time on Morning Brew, and it fails, and then I'm kind of searching for a job after. The second scenario is I stay at Morgan Stanley, shut down Morning Brew, and watch someone else build the thing, and I ask myself, what would I regret more? Mm -hmm. And that second situation, where I watch someone else build the thing because they were willing to take a little bit of a leap, that was so much scarier to me, and so that's why one of the reasons I made the decision to go full-time on the brew. I think as it related to the decision of stepping down as CEO, I basically said, What would I more regret? Would I more regret um, leaving my CEO role, becoming chairman, having to deal with like kind of reconciling my identity but watching the business continue to grow because the right person is in the right seat then? Or stay within Morning Brew, take back my responsibilities, which would largely be ego-driven and potentially not be the best person to drive the business moving forward? And it's like, that second one is, hundred percent what I would regret more. And I think what that exercise actually does is it tries to separate kind of like my emotions and the stories that I tell myself from like the fact of the matter. And so that, I think that's what I'm constantly trying to do is like, you're. I'm a hundred percent, like I hundred percent of the time felt emotions toward this idea of stepping down to CEO. It was super ego provoking. I worried about becoming irrelevant. So I needed some sort of like shortcut to not allow my emotions to make the decision. So you you
1: operate under re- regret minimization. Framework. Yeah, definitely. yeah, and a, yeah, exactly. You should read uh, a book, Daniel by Daniel Pink, uh, who just who wrote about the fact that you should lean into regrets. Actually, uh, I I read it. Like like he's saying you should regret things more. Yes. Because it's like for you know it it regret helps you learn. No, he's saying uh, not he's not saying you should yeah. lean into regret, but he's saying don't shy away from it because it actually can help you, uh, you know, become a better person. By That's interesting.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing in the current day. Uh, but actually, first, I remember when you launched this podcast, a little podcast called Founders Journal, back during the pandemic, which was basically like an audio diary of what yep. you were thinking about on a daily basis as a founder. You actually sunsetted that podcast, had a couple of podcasts in between, but now you're bringing Founders Journal back. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about Founders Journal 2.0 and then what you kind of hope to accomplish with yeah, that?
0: Yeah, totally. So I would say one of my talk about regrets. One of my biggest regrets is not documenting the journey of building morning brew more along the way. Like I would say one of kind of my biggest realizations in life. And I think about this in the context of building morning brew and not remembering some of these like amazing memories, like for every memory of like interviewing Neil, there are nine others that I can't remember, which I hate the feeling of. And I feel this in life also, like, you know, one of my biggest regrets is not document, like, you know, you guys know, like I lost my dad when I was in college. And one of my biggest regrets is not having more videos and images to kind of relive some of the experiences that I had with him. And so as I thought about it with Founders Journal, the original thought was, it was during the pandemic, uh, things were a little bit slow. And I was just like, I want to start documenting my journey. I haven't been able to force myself into the habit of journaling on pen and paper. So what can I do to force the habit? And so the idea was if I create a podcast that is a journal, Now I am accountable to listeners. And so I'm not going to let them down. Mm -hmm. I've been letting myself down in the past. I'm not going to let them down. So I started doing that. The crazy thing is Founders Journal started as five days a week, which is just (laughs) who would ever do a podcast (laughs) five days a week, which is just the definition of like an over ambitious, overextended founder. So I started with that. And I would just talk about everything I was learning within the brew, like lessons about everything from like how to fire, how to hire, like how to goal set, um, the decision to step down as CEO, et cetera. And then what happened was I did like 350 episodes of it. I think at its peak, it got to like 350,000 downloads of max. Uh, 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 sorry, a month. And what happened was I had moved out of the CEO role. So this was probably like mid 2021. And I was in that period I was describing before of like eight to 12 months of soul searching and not doing a whole lot. And honestly, like coming up with at the time, three episodes a week where I didn't have like subject matter and experience right. to talk about felt very forced and inauthentic. So I took a break from that for a period of time, did imposters for a while, which I love doing and mm-hmm. I still get messages about it. I just think it's a business that there's still potentially behavioral change that needs to happen in society for it to be large enough. Can you tell us what, a little bit about that? yeah, the whole idea of imposters was, um, the intersection of mental health and career. So it was interviewing, you know, really big names, like everyone from, you know, uh, Jay Shetty to Mark Cuban, uh, to just, uh, other execs like, uh, Andy Roddick, basically people who have had a wild amount of success talking to them about deep challenges they've experienced in their career. So like one of my favorite ones was with Apollo Ono and, you know, this guy with, uh, the winningest uh, winter Olympian of all time. And he was retired from uh, speed skating by the age, he was like 22 or something. And so like he had to kind of deal with like, Mm -hmm. how did he pivot himself after, like when he was basically ending his career, when most people start their careers. And so I thought the whole idea was if you get really successful people to be vulnerable, it'll bring them eye level with everyone else in society where other people will feel the permission to be vulnerable. And the show did really, like to me, the most impactful part of the show was the emails we would get of like literally these like novels about the impact it had. But honestly, I think the economics of the show didn't get nearly big enough to be, let's call it like worth the time from a business perspective. So that was imposters did crazy ones for a little while, which was like entrepreneurship talk show. And it was really good, but basically what happened was, in the last six months, I've gotten back into kind of like being more active, like in terms of building businesses, talking to other entrepreneurs, advising companies. So I have a lot to talk about now. And I made the decision that like, I loved Founders Journal. Like I really loved the process. It gave me so much energy of documenting the journey. And I think actually there's just like more from a business perspective, a competitive opportunity, like in creating this content. I don't know anyone else who's doing kind of like journal style, 10 to 20 minute episodes, in general, let alone, like, the entrepreneurship space. And I also think a lot of my brand is around, like, vulnerability and, like, sharing everything about my story, which, to me, lends itself to a journal. Mm-hmm. And so I'm super excited to bring it back. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about everything from, like, an episode... <laughs> quick, yeah, go ahead.
2: Quick, quick plug, yeah, you talked about, like, the making of Morning Brew Daily. So that was one of the first uh, of the revamped Founders Journal episodes. So exactly. go listen
0: to that. Yeah, and, and to me, you know, uh, kind of the, the lens that I look through with every episode I create, I'm like, how can a builder, a first or second time founder get something from this episode that they can apply today or apply in the near future to their business. So for like morning brew daily, basically the headline of the, the episode was how this, this show got to around 2 million downloads in less than 90 days, kind of like, what are all the lessons from it? And, you know, a few of them were everything from, uh, having hosts, with really good chemistry is like the most important thing. And I I think I made the point, I was like, it's a, if you have people who are B plus talented but A plus chemistry I'd rather that over A plus talented but B plus chemistry and then I did go on to say you that is both right. it is both A plus talent and A plus chemistry so it's just like a bunch of lessons around that which you know you may be wondering why does every entrepreneur need to care about this but I think like we know the value of building audience and content so even if you're not building a media business these are best practices
1: you should know as an entrepreneur yeah. speaking of entrepreneurship I've always wanted to I've always wanted to ask this question but um, you've spoken to so many found- Founders over the past few years for your podcast and in other situations, are entrepreneurs a different species? Like, are, are they born with a certain gene, or can anyone be one? Um, just because I was watching, it's like you,
2: Ratatouille. Anyone can cook. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> anyone I know, can I wa- found a business. Because I just watched you and Austin do your thing uh, when I came in, and I was like, "Holy hell!" Like, <laughs> yeah. I am not this type of person. So, um, I, I uh, think so.
0: I think there are base skills that are required to be an entrepreneur. And honestly, I think those base skills are like some combination of uh, grit, critical thinking, and like um, an irrational belief that you can do something that probably you aren't qualified to do. I also think there's like, I've seen this question asked on Twitter before, and I think there's a lot of nuance to it because that question assumes like every startup or business has like the same risk or level of skill needed. And so what I would say is like, I think there are a ton of people that can be entrepreneurs, but let's just use an example. Like someone I interviewed uh, recently was Brett Adcock, who is creating figure like these humanoid robots that uh, he wants to basically like, almost like he's recreating iRobot in society and life the percent, the number of founders that I think can go for that bet and the skill you need, like you have to be born with something Mm -hmm. there. And like, to me, you can count that on one hand, but if you were to say like, how many entrepreneurs could, you know, start a, um, you know, like an agency business to start. I think that's a way larger number. So I think there's these base skills you need either through nature or nurture, but then as you specialize the ambition of the business more in the technical know-how
1: that number gets whittled down very quickly. Do you think you would have started a business if, if morning brew wasn't that in the picture? Great question. Uh, I don't
0: know. Cause I never thought like entrepreneurship was never the dream for me. Uh, like you know, uh, Jesse Puji, who I know well, like he dreamed from day one of being an entrepreneur. He started businesses as early as middle school. He was a DJ in high school, had like uh, a wedding DJ business. And that's because his dad uh, started a travel agency. My parents had like very much kind of like down the fairway careers. So entrepreneurship wasn't on my radar. So I really, I think it's a question of, would I have been exposed to entrepreneurship early enough in life mm-hmm. to then Feel the need and the interest to go do it. There are absolutely examples of me kind of being a tinkerer and inventor earlier in life. Like at Sleepway Camp, I would shine shoes for money. Uh, there you go. In kindergarten, I created my first invention, which was I took a pen, uh, a pencil, I'm sorry, a pen and a highlighter. I cut them in half and I combined them so you could have one tool for. Uh, writing and highlighting.
2: A, what what <laughs> you would you call it? A highlighter. A, 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 a pen lighter? Yeah, okay. Put in not erase pi- anything.
0: Yeah, I, crea- <laughs> I created the original highlighter. Uh, um, yeah, exactly, there was no eraser on it. So I think the short answer is, it actually depends on post-college, how much exposure I would have gotten to doing things outside of the normal path.
2: Okay, final question before we jump into our last segment. What sector of the business or entrepreneurship world most excites you right now? and you cannot say AI. So you got to pick one outside of AI. Yeah.
0: um, I think I'll say two very quickly. The first is kind of like everything that's happening in psychedelics research, Mm. because, and this is, by the way, as someone who's like never used psychedelics in my life. So it's not like I'm like kind of like, pro drugs it's more like there's been a lot of research done by really smart people of the impact that these compounds in psychedelics uh can have especially if you take away the psychedelic uh nature and you just like some of these compounds have like anti-inflammatory benefits etc and so the reason i think it's really interesting is there's glimmers of a ton of opportunity there's money going into it but it's a natural it's a kind of like historically bastardized industry where Mm -hmm. people don't give it the attention it deserves because it's associated with something. So I'd say that, and I would say like any kind of like really fascinating hard tech or like uh physical robots <laughs> hardware businesses because i think they generally haven't been funded by vcs the probability of success is wildly low and so i have such an appreciation for people who are taking swings and so as early as called like tesla and spacex with elon but now things like you know figure with brett adcock or uh, varda space yeah. uh like i don't know i find people who are willing to take those bets, they have a different risk profile than me as an entrepreneur
1: and I'm super inspired by them. Maybe maybe if you're building a pickleball shoe or something. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely, maybe. All right, Alex, those are all the long form questions we have. Yes. We have one last segment where we're gonna hit you with a couple of rapid fire questions and hopefully you give us a couple of rapid fire answers as well. Yep. So first question is how do you de-stress or wind down at the end of a day? um exercise like i I feel like it's
0: such a boring answer but when i sweat uh it literally makes me feel better also uh we have a record player in our apartment and playing records and just like sitting back on the couch with my dog laying belly up on me (laughs) is the best thing all right what's,
1: what's the record you play most often uh Dave Matthews, man. That's uh, Mm. Carly's uh, favorite, so he played Dave Matthews a lot. Easy. All right. uh, If an entrepreneur walked up to you and said, write me a check, uh, but I'm not going to tell you what the company is, who is the person who could do this and you'd agree to it?
2: Brett Adcock. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The robot man? Yeah. Robot man. (laughs) Checks out. All right. What is the characteristic you weigh most heavily when hiring?
0: Number one, self-awareness. Number two, critical thinking. If you don't know what you're good at and you don't know what you're bad at, uh, I don't know how to support you to grow as a professional and critical thinking because the only constant is change and what you start with your business is not where it's going to end up. And so you have to evolve. And
2: and weird niche knowledge of uh, U.S. battles, of course. (laughs) Exactly. Um, On
1: that same vein, what is your favorite interview question to ask?
2: Damn.
1: Um... T- like to uh, a guest or oh, no, 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 to a uh, candidate, to a, a
0: candidate. Um, I'm going to change this around. because you know It's not a question. It's a new practice that I'm doing yeah. that I tweeted about yesterday that I don't know why it's not more commonplace. I send all interview questions to candidates before interviewing now. I don't know why we're in a world where like catching someone off guard, is what people do like why not be able to prepare your thoughts so that then as an interviewer you can see how deeply someone thinks versus that all you're testing for is the ability to think quickly on your feet which maybe that's something you're testing for but it's not the only thing
2: interesting maybe we should have sent you these questions ahead of time all right uh you recently got married what is one thing that it most surprised you about planning a wedding <laughs>
0: Uh, I can take zero credit for the planning process. (laughs) But as an observer. Um, I would say at the end of the day, how special and more important the ceremony is than the celebration, like the dancing and the band and the food is great. But to me, the moments I'll remember forever is like Carly and I exchanging vows to each other and uh, having our parents around us during that experience. and at the end of the day, with, with the actual celebration,
1: food and band is all that matters. Mm. Don't leave people hungry and don't leave people not dancing. There you go. Yeah. All right. Final question. Recommend literally anything. <laughs> um, adult coloring books. Okay. Uh, that's I should have given that as the
0: answer before to yes. how do I de-stress. I've gotten super into adult coloring books. And they're literally just coloring books. Yeah, Someone say, called them adult that, coloring books to be able
1: to charge more. But I love them. That is a good point. Adult toys is one, another industry that I would look into. Like, like non R rated adult toys. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Not, <laughs> you didn't even realize yeah, what he absolute did right layup. there. Yeah. Uh, yes. Toys that are for adults. There you to go. Play with I, I totally agree. In public.
0: Yes. There you go. <laughs> what a way to end. Good job. All man.
1: right. I think we're going to have to end it there. Thanks so much, Alex. Uh, so great talking to you. This is fun. Good luck, Thanks, guys. This journal. We'll see you around.